from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Less than a minute now. Tool time for 200. That is Ken Jennings, who holds the record for the longest winning streak on Jeopardy. It's not a show known for being very funny, Alex Trebek tries, but it's got its moments. Here's an episode with Jennings from 2004. This term for a long-handled gardening tool can also mean an immoral pleasure seeker. Ken. What's a hoe? No. (laughs) Whoa! They teach you that in school in Utah, huh, Al? What's a rake? A rake is right. Ken Jennings is known more for his vast knowledge of the universe than his wit, but both come together in his new book, Planet Funny, How Comedy Took Over Our Culture. It's a very entertaining and thoughtful look into the past, present, and future of comedy and humor. You know, nobody expects a Jeopardy contestant to be funny. And there's this weird stereotype where we don't expect smart people to be funny, even though... Really, smart people are the only people who who can be funny. I mean, it, it takes well, a quick all, mind. All truly fun, almost all real professionally funny people are smart people. Yeah, it, it, it's true that it does not go the other way. Yeah, but yes, yeah, some smart people must be funny. As I discovered from the memoir parts of this book, you were a funny kid. I feel like class clown types discover very early on that that's something they have in their arsenal. Right, you know that they can make people laugh and that can disarm a situation or charm an adult or diffuse a question or whatever it is. And that becomes a very core part of your personality because a lot of these class clown type kids, me included, were not also, you know, captain of the whatever football team or whatever. Uh, So it becomes very central to your identity very quickly. And I I grew up watching and loving comedy. Right. Your, Your subtitle for Planet Funny is How Comedy Took Over Our Culture. And although, as I say, it's brisk and lighthearted, it's a serious essay, an argument, as well as a history. Talk about what you mean by that. I, you know, I first was very delighted when I discovered Twitter that there were just people making jokes all day. And I was like, well, I'll riff with these people. They're just just making jokes about the news all day. What fun. And then it starts to rewire your brain because you realize just how fast it's coming and what a kind of a weird headspace you get into looking to make fun of something all the time. And once Twitter had kind of rewired my brain... It was like putting on the sunglasses in the Rowdy Roddy Piper movie where you just start seeing this hidden world everywhere. Like I I started to see things being funny that didn't used to be funny. Why were airline safety videos, why do there have to be jokes teaching you how to pull down the oxygen mask? Why do politicians have to have joke writers writing them zingers during debates? Why are we getting our, our news from comedy shows? And yeah. I started to think this comedy escalation is not just changing us, it's really changing our society. Correct. Um, the, the early chapters of Planet Funny, uh, first of all, I think it's a terrific book, and and anybody mildly interested in America and comedy uh, should read it. But well, thank the, you. you. You have a real history, brisk and lighthearted, but a real history of comedy from the beginning. You, you do this uh, extraordinary chart that I have here called A Very Incomplete Map of Comedy. It's very incomplete, but it has, I don't know, a hundred different little bubbles of comedians and comedies. Yeah, and maybe more, I think. Its main feature is these arrows pointing from one writer or comedian or institution to the next and the next. 
to show who each influenced and who influenced whom. It shows how various comic sensibilities have evolved, like from Aristophanes to Charlie Chaplin to Billy Eichner. So uh, this is a, a Ken Jennings drawing? It's a Ken Jennings original. <laughs> yeah? This is a very tricky part of, I guess, an audio format to describe a very intricate visual artifact. <laughs> yeah. I thought I could maybe, you know, just kind of sketch this out in a day or two, and it really took a month because it turned out to be a very tall order to trace comedy from the Greeks all the way to YouTube. So let's walk through some of the family tree. One of the strata goes from ancient Greece to Saturday Night Live, starting with Aristophanes, who I guess is the most ancient person uh, here. It's the most, yeah, it's, it, chronologically, it starts in the lower left with Aristophanes, who yeah. I guess is the, the earliest yeah, because Homer comedian. wasn't funny, right? Not to me. Yeah, I mean, people know Lysistrata, which is like a, a high-concept comedy, right? Women won't have sex unless you stop making war. And it's a satire, too, with a, a kind of a pointed edge that still works yeah. just fine. I want us to abstain from, go on, sexual intercourse. <laughs> Where are you off to? Come back, all of you. No sex, no way. I'd rather have the war. So uh, then you go to what seems like just a hop, skip, and a jump, but uh, you go to Rome, ancient Rome, which is a few hundred years later, to uh, Horace. Satire number nine. One fourth of the day being now past, we came to Vesta's temple. I am in doubt what I shall do, said he, whether desert you or my cause. Me, I beg of you. And I know nothing about Horace. How's he, how's he on here? Well, you get to the two kinds of satire. Obviously, the Romans idolized the Greeks. So there's two branches coming off of Aristophanes for Horatian satire and Juvenalian satire. Uh, juvenile, I, I'm more familiar with. Right, them, right? and uh, I'm probably going to get the order wrong. But the idea is one is a more gentle, uh, kind of affectionate kind of ribbing, and one is really, really which sticking in the knife. Things got to change. I'm going to say that Horatian is nicer, and I'm probably going to look it up after this and yeah. find out I'm wrong. Wow, I asked a question of Ken Jennings, and he may be wrong. How meta. You know, like, it, what you should do is really be confident and be like, Horatian's the nice one, Kurt. But then people just look it up on the internet yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. and send you yeah, nasty yeah, mail. Yeah, yeah. So. You know, we're, not, we're not giving you $500 or anything for this, <laughs> um, if you get it wrong. All right. And then it goes to Cervantes, Don Quixote. Yeah, that comes off of Horace. Oh, which means I got it right, because these, oh, yeah. these are kind of the warmer, more fun. Right. Uh, satires where you like the protagonist. Don Quixote is, you know, he's he's a nut, but what a nice old guy, you yeah. know. Um, same for, and you know, and then all the but novelists also what a that brilliantly drew from modern book for 1600. It's got these weird meta conceits. I would have wished to hand you the story neat and naked, but I must admit that, though the story gave me some trouble to compose, I found none greater than the writing of this preface you are reading. That's from the audiobook of Don Quixote, and... From Cervantes, you go another couple of centuries to another clever meta book, Tristram Shandy uh, by Lawrence Stern. Yeah, I have Lewis Carroll coming off of Tristram Shandy because of kind of the nonsense... Englishy. Uh, Englishy thing. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. You have the goons on there. Americans do not know the goons. It was a very influential, uh, a kind of Dadaist, absurdist British radio thing of the 50s. A nice man wrote the time down for me this morning. If uh, anybody asked me the time, <laughs> I, I can show it to them. Well, then, supposing when somebody asks you the time, it isn't 8 o'clock. Well, then I don't show it to them. <laughs> Hugely influential to a generation of British kids who were like, what is this stuff on the radio? And those kids later became Monty Python. Right now, you two, me old beauties, you are nicked. What for? I'm charging you under Section 21 of the Strange Sketch Act. 
A what? You are hereby charged that you did willfully take part in a strange sketch, that is, a skit, spoof, or humorous vignette of an unconventional nature with intent to cause grievous mental confusion to the great British public. And this is the cruncher. Offenses against the getting out of sketches without using a proper punchline act. And, and then uh, here in America, uh, you, you end up on that same line on Saturday Night Live. Yes, my friend. Uh, would you mind um, ending this sketch? You like the sketch to end, huh? Yeah, yeah, I would. The sketch is, is too long, huh? <laughs> yeah. The same thing over and over, huh? Yeah, right, right. I ended the sketch for you. Elias, end the sketch for the man. You like this sketch to end, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I would. Getting very boring, huh? Kinda, yeah. 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 sketch is long. long. Too long yeah. sketch. Yeah. Long. Yeah. Audience yeah. is getting pissed off. <laughs> that kind of meta, whoa, where, where it's a comedy about comedy uh, thing. How did that happen? Just because of, as as comedy proliferated and took over everything, there was simply room for this other kind of comedy? Some, some of it is us, I think. Uh, everybody starting to see enough comedy. I mean, you know, hundreds of years of human history, you were just dying for somebody to tell you a good joke at the inn or in the fields because life was so bleak and comedy-free. But once we started to see hours of it a day, and today, uh, pretty much a steady stream of it, an avalanche of it, uh, we can all do the thing. We're all in a big comedy writer's room where we're kind of kind of riffing in our heads, thinking what, you know, even if we don't mean to, what joke would I do here? Right. Uh, like we, we start to see the strings and understand the mechanics. And in that kind of environment where we're all thinking like a comedy writer, meta-comedy can work because we understand the joke they're not doing to do the joke they're doing. And one big change from uh, 30 years ago, uh, and you talk about, is, is the number of jokes we process. You actually have a chart, another chart in your book, uh, that tracks the laughs per minute in sitcoms um, from Father Knows Best. Active participation is the basis of good citizenship. Don't you kids realize that the habits you form here at home are the ones you're going to take with you into your community life? A good citizen doesn't shirk his duty. He does his share to help others. And what's more, he doesn't have to be asked a hundred times. He volunteers willingly and cheerfully. Is that clear? Mother, do you believe Elizabeth Taylor's waistline is only 19 inches? Oh, fine. Then all the way up to the great Netflix series, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah, that boy's gay. What? Gay as a penguin. <gasps> Educate yourself. Read a nature video. He's not gay. Gay hasn't even gotten to Indiana yet. There have been rumors in Ohio. I know small town gay Kimmy. Brandon has a tan line where he usually wears a leather cuff. He's from Indiana, but he weighs less than 200 pounds. And there's a stain on his jeans that could only be from revarnishing an Edwardian escritoire. What? It's gay for desk. Ugh. First of all, where does that data come from? Does the government have that data? <laughs> where did you Where did you get it? For counting sitcom jokes, that was me with a sitting with a stopwatch watching old uh, comedy shows and trying to, you know, in, in some cases it you becomes You could have gotten a cultural studies grad student to do that work for you. <laughs> I have no intern. I, I do all my own chart work. And the takeaway is that the pace has essentially doubled. Jokes are more come more than twice as fast at us today. I mean, TV comedy might be the slowest co- delivery method of comedy when you're seeing hundreds of funny ads a day and just funny tweets and uh, Facebook memes and whatnot streaming by your pocket device as well. We are literally seeing hundreds, if not thousands, of jokes a day, and I think it's changing how we think. And anecdotally, just on sitcoms, TV sitcoms, it seemed to change from, like, the early mid-'90s, let's say Friends, to 30 Rock. 
a decade or so more later. I mean, that's, that to me is when, whoa, it's crazily speeding up. And I felt old uh, as, I, right. as I tried to keep up. What's too old? That's a very good question. How old are you? I'm 29. What year were you born? 1977. When did you graduate high school? 94. When did you turn 40? 2017. Junior high crush? Kirk Cameron. Prom theme? Motown Philly, Boys to Men. What movie did you lose your virginity at? Arachnophobia. Theater or drive-in? What's a drive-in? You can't even laugh at a joke because you know there's another topper coming right. and you're going to miss it. Uh, I think the sea change there might be the influence of The Simpsons. Yes, and, you talk about The Simpsons. Yeah, George Meyer, a Simpsons writer, uh, lives in Seattle. I know him. Uh, I've been lucky enough to know him a bit. And he pointed out that, you know, so much of the pace of old sitcoms was, as we were saying, the live audience and all the shoe leather you would have to do to, to actually do things on a stage. Whereas the Simpsons could cut away to what was going on in China if they wanted for, for three seconds and then snap back. Besides, it isn't costing us. I swiped the cinder blocks from a construction site. Sir, six cinder blocks are missing. There'll be no hospital then. I'll tell the children. And so many of these changes are not reversible, especially in comedy. Once you have the novelty of the laugh, once something starts to feel new and a little more sophisticated and more complicated than what was done in the past, um, that becomes the new baseline. However, I'm thinking, as I read that, uh, you have maybe a new genre like Atlanta, like girls. And, and one of the reasons they're regarded and, and are better or more sophisticated is because it's not just going for you know, five jokes every 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, there's so much comedy of so many different types, and it allows for things like these kind of sad comms or more organic comedies right. where you could frame it as a, as a triumph for comedy because comedy is now seeping into these kind of slice-of-life dramas Yeah, it, it, because now everything has to have a little shot of it. Yeah, you're a successful tweeter. I think you make a good living from that, don't you, as we all do. Um, <laughs> My rate per tweet is probably as good as anyone's in America. Yeah, but that does seem like... I, I don't want to say final because Lord knows what will be the case of comedy saturation in another 20 years. But social media and Twitter in particular does seem like the, the thing that's taken it to this extreme level where it's worth writing a book about how comedy has subsumed culture. The fact that it's a constant companion now, that the comedy is in your pocket. and uh, That's and, a horrible and, idea. But I yes. know. And you can just see a stream of it, a scroll of it, an unending scroll of uh, funny jokes and quips and photos. I had a hard time in the book predicting what comes next because it seems like we're so close to the singularity. Yeah. How do you get more comedy than this? But maybe Well, and some large fraction of podcasts of, you know, a million of the 10 million podcasts are comedy podcasts. It's uh, that's a sea change too, you know. We used to have one, you know, you'd have one or two records from a comedian you liked and you would just wear them out because that and was all there was. And wait for the next Steve Martin album a year, I, two years later. I know. And, you know, maybe there will, you know, maybe Eddie Murphy will do four good albums and that's all you get. And yet today the expectation is you can keep up with all your favorite comedians. They're going to tweet at you four times today. You're going to hear their podcast on Tuesday. They're going to guest on a friend's podcast on Friday. They might be on a panel show over the weekend. You really feel like they're your friends now, like you're keeping in touch with them all the well, time. Well, that's a problem with our crazed celebrity culture in general and a whole other discussion. But this gluttony, this this post-comedy scarcity moment, you don't think it's all good. You, there, there are downsides. It's hard for me to say because, like, the book is a love letter to comedy, I, I would hope. But... There does feel, feel like there's something just unsustainable about having so much of it. I notice it in my own brain, the fact that I don't take as much pleasure from jokes anymore. And I think it's because there's just too many of them. The hedonic treadmill speeds up and you need that low baseline of comedy huh. to even feel normal. And so... So you need harder harder comedy drugs? It's true. You get more these more engineered, you know, jokes just that have just been refined down to one twenty-fourth of a second with digital editing 
and uh, stranger, more absurd things. So you can finally see something weird on Adult Swim and say, finally, a joke I haven't seen before. You know, you, you need a, a, a newer high. And I think as a result, we're living in a golden age of people hearing a joke they like and instead of laughing, just kind of nodding and saying, that's very funny. Which is, of course, the famous thing that that in the past people always said about comedy writers. is like they're not laughing. They just say, oh, that's funny. They appreciate it and take no joy from it. And now I think we are all comedy writers. Uh, speaking of, of the future and humor, you played a famous uh, Jeopardy game against Watson. Part of the challenge for a computer to play Jeopardy was, oh, it has to understand the puns and the funny-ish things, the way that the statements are formed on Jeopardy. Can AI be funny anytime soon? Say you and I, to the degree part of our livelihoods are made up by being funny, uh, have nothing to worry about being put out of a job by automation in the next few years. This is a deeply personal question for you, right? I'm just wondering. Like how long do we actually have organic Kurt Anderson on the mic here, right? Yeah. It's interesting. There is plenty of artificial intelligence research on jokes and computers are still terrible at it. Uh, there's a funny case, there's a case in the book where some of the University of Washington in my hometown tries to teach a computer when to say that's what she said in the manner of Michael Scott on The Office. How long have you known Ms. Levinson? Six years and two months. And you were directly under her the entire time? That's what she said. Excuse me? That's what she said. You know, some kind of mild double entendre. Can the computer figure out where to say that's what she said? And it turns out, no, it's terrible. It misses like 80% of the openings. That's what she said. <laughs> no, it misses 80% of the openings, and it has, <laughs> and about half of its attempts are false positives. And I, I almost think that's part of subconsciously that might be underlying the humor boom, the comedy boom of today is we can sense that this is one thing that we will not become obsolete in anytime mm. soon. We can't be replaced as joke tellers, even as all of our other information economy level jobs are starting to disappear. And also, globalization can't replace it so easily because humor is so culturally translation specific. issues, yeah, exa- that's exactly right. All right. There's no, no, no uh, factory of Bangladeshi children is going to be uh, writing tweets for us anytime soon. Yeah, that's what you say now. Uh, Ken Jennings, uh, it's been a pleasure to meet you in real life, a pleasure to read this book, a pleasure to talk to you about it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kurt. Planet Funny is available from booksellers now, and you can follow Ken on Twitter, as I do. He's at Ken Jennings. Also, you can listen to him on the podcast that he co-hosts, Omnibus, with an exclamation point, like Jeb. Omnibus is so much fun, I I almost wish I was making it with him. That's what she said. Coming up, you start to see things or hear things that you are unsure of whether they're real or not. When art speaks to you, literally. She thinks that things are moving and then she thinks, oh, you know, um, Picasso is speaking to me. The intersections of art and mental illness in Mira T. Lee's debut novel. That's next on Studio 360.
The writer Mira T. Lee has family members who are mentally ill. Schizophrenia and the adjacent diagnosis, schizoaffective disorder. She knows personally that dealing with those people in the throes of illness can be harrowing. I've seen psychosis up close, and I know how scary it is to see your loved one transformed from this person who you knew all your life into someone who all of a sudden doesn't make sense anymore, or their personalities change and they become paranoid. And it's really, really frightening. She addresses this head-on in her first novel, just out, called Everything Here is Beautiful. It's about two sisters. The elder, Miranda, is successful and kind of straight-laced and responsible. The younger, Lucia, is very bright, works as a journalist, travels the world fine a lot of the time. She's impulsive, romantic, and then sometimes lapses into severe episodes of mental illness. And Miranda gets calls that the police found her sister screaming and naked in the street or shouting at a tree in Chinese and Spanish and Hebrew. So this passage is from when Lucia, she goes to see this therapist, and the therapist asks her to describe the first time that she remembers having any symptoms or signs of her illness. First time it happened. It, the zing. Freshman year of college. I was visiting the art museum staring at Picasso's Girl Before a Mirror. I first saw this painting in the Museum of Modern Art. I had been reading a little bit about cubism and about how it involves, you know, looking at something from different perspectives, and I thought that fit with Lucia, and it fit with Lucia just as a person in addition to Lucia as somebody who has an illness. The painting felt curiously bright. Ten minutes I stood there, You couldn't have pried off my eyes. And then came my reward. The painting is of a woman looking at her reflection in a mirror. And it is colorful and it has patterns in the background. On the left side is the woman in her daily life. And then on the right side is a much darker reflection of herself. The colors are darker. The face is more somber and there's a tear rolling down her cheek. Perhaps this is her external self looking into her internal self, or this is a vision of what people see of her and then what she sees of herself. The colors bubbled like something alien. And the girl's body parts came to life. First, her breasts jiggled, like ornaments dangling on a Christmas tree. Then her stomach growled. I thought of Lucia looking at this painting And then starting to have these symptoms, these prodromal symptoms, where perception is a little bit different and things are a little odd. Then half her cubist face laughed openly at me, while the other half distorted into a leer. Oh, Picasso, what a trick, I thought, enthralled by my own dreamlike state. She's not sure if it's her or if she's making it up in her head and so she sees things and they start speaking to her and it feels like signs and things start moving well the girl's me of course with one face for myself one for everyone else 
the people of the world. But no, that was wrong. There were the in-betweens. My mother, my sister, my roommates, my friends. And my boyfriends, never quite satisfying. The why relationships did or didn't work, I still couldn't figure. Maybe I needed more faces. One for each person I knew. Or maybe infinite for each new person I was still to meet. And then it hit me. Oh, great master, revealing to me the ways of human nature, the ideal of the soulmate, why true love was so hard to find. Zing! The faces. We each had too many faces. This is actually something relatively common in these illnesses. You start to see things or hear things that you are unsure of whether they're real or not. She thinks that things are moving, and then she thinks, oh, you know, um, Picasso is speaking to me. But then she's also able to see that she's doing that. And so she still has insight, which is a term used in these illnesses. She's still completely aware that she might be perceiving things a little bit funny, but she kind of still is interested in it. She's fascinated by this, like, this is happening to me, and how delightful. I took out my sketch pad, crayons to paper, I drew furiously. Circles, squares, triangles, color-coded for physical, intellectual, emotional needs, sense of humor, artistic appreciation, sexual adeptness, musical tastes, compatibility for travel and confinement in small spaces. If I could capture it on paper, create an artistic representation of human relationships, then it would finally all make sense. I rushed to my dorm room. I skipped lunch and dinner. I sketched the whole night in the dark, afraid that light would interfere with the synaptic conductions in my brain. By the next afternoon, the electricity had subsided. I squinted at pages and pages of my multicolored scribbles, trying to reconjure the excitement. But the connections, they were gone. When I found this image, it kind of spoke to me as everything that Lucia is in terms of her sanity and then insanity. She's bright and curious and vibrant, but then she's also tortured and depressed and just insecure sometimes. And so I immediately knew that this was the right painting she should be looking at. I think it represents everything that she is and everything, kind of everything that the book is. That's Mira T. Lee. Her new novel, her first, Everything Here is Beautiful, is out now. Studio 360's Zoe Saunders produced that story. Coming up, what happens when you ask the eight singers of Roomful of Teeth their names? Estelle! Abigail, Virginia, Eric, Avery Griffin, Avery Griffin, Taylor Ward, Cameron. The fantastic vocal group Room Full of Teeth performs live. That's next on Studio 360.
Studio 360. I am kind of a student of modern band names, and so often they have no real meaning or relevance except to be memorable or edgy or odd. Room Full of Teeth is all those things, odd and edgy and memorable, but I like it because it also means something, because their cool music is made of nothing but a bunch of voices coming out of mouths. They are a magnificent eight-person vocal ensemble who make music out of all sorts of genres and techniques from all over the world, and we have the whole group here in our room today, plus the founder and director, Brad Wells. Brad Wells and Roomful of Teeth, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, since there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of you, uh, as promised, uh, will you go around and, and introduce yourself and maybe sing a bar or two to give listeners a sense of your various voices? Esteli, Esteli, Martha, Martha, Abigail, Abigail, Virginia, Virginia, Eric. Eric. Avery. Avery Griffin. Avery Griffin. Taylor Ward. Taylor Ward. My name is Cameron. Cameron. Uh, that's just beautiful. Thank you very much. And the first song that uh, you're all going to perform, Brad Wells, is what? It is the first movement from Caroline Shaw's Partita for Eight Voices. Uh, it's called Alamond. Excellent. Let's hear it. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. Through the middle end. To the side. To the side. To the side. And around. Through the middle end. To the side. 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 And around. And around. And around. And around. Through the middle. To the side. Two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight. Through the midpoint. Of the line. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And around. And around. Element. 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 Is movement. The detail of the pattern 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 is movement. 
Man, oh man, uh, that is the magnificent Roomful of Teeth performing Alimand from Partita for Eight Voices, uh, composed by today's missing member, Carolyn Shaw. And listeners, I, I encourage you, if you just heard that on the radio, you will do yourself a service if you go to our website or iTunes and get the podcast version and put on good headphones or on your speakers and listen to it and all the rest of uh, the music you're going to hear today from Roomful of Teeth. I guarantee it'll please you. Um, so uh, that was uh, that was great. 
Uh, and one of the things that struck me about that piece of music is it seemed to me, to idiot me, to, to require a incredibly complex timing of people coming in and out and saying whatever they're saying and making whatever, more than lots of your music. Is that true, Brad? I wouldn't say it's it's more complex. It has it has a variety that maybe makes it sound more complex. Yes, and it's impressive things, to a sucker like me. There, there's a very strict grid. At the same time, there's freedom on top of that grid on in stretches. So it it sounds like it's incredibly complex when the singers are just going along on the on that grid and they feel that grid from from moment to moment. Huh. So when they speak, when they stop speaking, that's all sort of constrained freedom. Um, in in many places, other times it's very precise. Yeah, and and by freedom you mean not that they can just go do what they want. Sometime within these four beats, say these three words. Okay, and and, and the words. I mean, most of your music, t- to the degree I've listened to a lot of it now, doesn't uh, involve intelligible words, and that artistic stylistic bias is is why. Well, we, we, there's been no discussion or collective decision making along vote on those that? lines. No, there was never a, a room full of teeth will sing only so many words per concert. Um, I think because the project focuses on the voice in a particular way, it's inspired composers to write a lot of music where the attention doesn't go to the text primarily, where the, the attention is to the color and the, the gestures and the the qualities of the voice, and maybe there are some words that come in or out, but text is such a foregrounding gesture move in vocal music. So I think keeping that back allows for the listener to hear other aspects of the singing. Well, it pleases me, and it's useful for me because I need music on when I'm writing, but I can't have words on when I'm writing. So I'm the same way. Thanks. <laughs> um, will Roomful of Teeth now sing another song for us? Absolutely. We'll sing Cheska's View by Rindy Eckert. Excellent. It features Esteli Gomez on lead yodel.
That is, once again, Roomful of Teeth performing Cheska's View uh, this time. Uh, uh, well, that was beautiful as well. And, and and what's the story with that? The composer is Rindy Eckert. Is that somebody you commissioned to compose this? That's that's correct. Rindy was one of our first first composers who uh, we commissioned to write write for the group. And and how does that happen? You say, oh, Rindy, write a song, or or or, or is is guidance or germs of ideas? Uh, do that? Do they come first? It's a great question. The the way we like to work and the way it worked with with Rindy was he spent several weeks with the group while they were studying some of these techniques for the first time, yodeling and and some other things. Really? You're not all yodelers from way back? Estella, you haven't yodeled before? Never once. Huh. Uh, So we study with with masters from these other singing traditions and get some degree of comfort and flexibility and... um, from those interactions, and then the commissioned composers observe that process, hear what the singers are capable of, and then explore, given these possibilities, what might I create? And and Rindy had this idea of, of evoking a sort of Swiss alpine landscape uh, based on a, a place he had stayed, a friend of his named Cheska. How lovely it is, but also how great for a composer to just sort of See, see you all doing the work, oh, and saying, "I'm going to make a song about this." That that sounds unusual in terms of musical composition. I hadn't heard of it, yeah. it's, but but it, yeah. it has been fruitful in many many yes. cases. Um, so yodeling, we know yodeling. Are there? But is there one yodeling, or are there regional varieties and technical uh, yodeling? Yodeling finds its way into singing all over the world, yeah, and sometimes in very pronounced ways. Um, a lot of African, sort of Central and Western African uh, tribes yodel and yodel collectively in very complex songs. And, and Estelle, you'd never yodeled before you started yodeling, and now, you, now you're one of America's most famous yodelers, I guess. <laughs> Not um, so sure. Uh, uh, did, did it come easily to you? I actually, because I had done folk singing and uh, some belting before, as well as had degrees in classical singing, I actually, those two parts of my range had never met before yodeling. I had kind of, oh, I know how to sing a song in this lower part of my range. I know how to sing an aria in this higher part of my range. But I, until we started studying this, no, I hadn't, certainly hadn't formally understood, oh, the, the, break and the juxtaposition of those ranges, that's yodeling, and that's actually pretty pretty comfortable for me. Yeah. That's great. What, what, a, what a great kind of uh, serendipitous aha moment. Yeah, right? yeah. absolutely. Um, what, what uh, in addition to yodeling teachers, what other techniques from around the world uh, have you, have you uh, had people training you in? Um, let's see. I mean, a lot of them we, we don't think of it as specific techniques like yodeling. Some of them are more sort of uh, worlds of singing, like Korean pansori doesn't have one sound, but it's a way of using the voice in a, in a particular style. Um, Sardinian cantu a tenore, uh, an old style of singing from the, the male part of that culture in Sardinia that uh, goes centuries and centuries back and is very beautiful. I'd love it if if we could have uh, singers demonstrate some of of the particular international techniques that you have used and incorporated. In the pansori, this classical Korean style that's very expressive of the text, one of the ways that it bubbled up and informed one of our pieces was something that Caroline uh, noticed in a particular 
song, and it's a very famous Korean song, and it has this gesture that uh, Virginia will demonstrate. And every time you hear that song, and you can go on to, to YouTube and, and find dozens of different singers singing that song, there's some variety always in the pitch content, but there are a couple of uh, vocal gestures that are signatures to the huh. song, and one of them is that. Another actually is a kind of yodel sh- break shake that happens in another part. So Caroline was interested in that that dig down from um, that had no pitch and then coming up to a chord. Um, not something that happens in the style, but something that she thought might be interesting compositionally. So she brought an idea to the group. It was massaged a little bit, um, so it would be comfortable and sustainable for the singers to sing a lot. And and this is how it found its way into Sarabande. How interesting. Uh, perfect and beautiful. Uh, this Sardinian cantua tenore, mm-hmm. what, what, what is that and how have you similarly worked that into something? That's a, a really fascinating style of singing. Um, the, the basic structure, it's, it's four guys and you've, you've, throughout villages in Sardinia, there's the, the villages each tend to have a quartet, sometimes more, but off, often just one quartet that's like their quartet. Like barbershop quartets yeah, used to be. Yeah, kind of yeah. like that. And and three of the, the guys will typically sing nonsense syllables in a, in a rhythmic way, but each is singing fundamentally, physiologically differently one from another. And they establish a groove that has a remarkable sort of resonance and, and bubbly quality. And then over that groove, a singer will sing a, a melody with text. The nonsense syllables are often a kind of bim-bam, bim-bam driving thing. Um, easy Again, easy to find on YouTube. One of the famous groups is Tenores di Biti. But I made use of it in a piece called Otherwise, um, where that groove is, is – or a groove inspired by that that – sound world is in part of the group. Uh, some of the the upper voices sing in a sort of Bulgarian belty way, and then uh, our baritone will sing in a classical bel canto way. So you have all three of these different vocal approaches cohabiting for stretches of the piece. Any chance we could hear a bit of otherwise? Sure. That's fantastic. Uh, man, you, globalization, uh, you're, you're the soundtrack for globalization, I guess, in a good way. Brad Wells and Roomful of Teeth, uh, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, I've been listening to your music for days, and uh, I, I'm so happy to have discovered you and to have you here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. You can find out more about Roomful of Teeth 
including what they look like, at our website, studio360.org. And that's it for this episode of Studio 360, which is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show was mixed this week by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. There's a stain on his jeans that could only be from revarnishing an Edwardian escritoire. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. The tragedy of Walden is that it is read as a guy who went to a pond, you know, to make a better life. What we get wrong about Henry David Thoreau's masterwork. Really, it's about a guy who came back from the pond. The latest installment in our American Icon series, Walden. Next time on Studio 360.